Okay, hello, my friend. Well, Hi, Mark. I, I, ha I haven't seen you in a, in a while. Yes, it's been years. Uh, they add up quick when you're sitting around doing nothing at home uh, or slowly. It depends on how you look at it. Time doesn't seem to flow properly anymore. That is true. So how, how was this last, last year for you? Well, it's fine. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, how to put it? Um, I have a really well-organized life in my old age. So in that sense, it's, you know, uh, my wife and the house and, and all this stuff is, is carefully organized. On the other hand, I, I got cancer and had a little mm. operation for liver cancer, which was a pain in the ass. And uh, but now I'm in remission. I don't have any currently, so that's fine. And uh, that happened right at the beginning of COVID. So the hospital was it was it was interesting. The hospital was uh, the main one here in Montreal was preparing to receive the first COVID patients and sectioning off parts of the hospital to be for that purpose and instituting uh, regulations about how to protect yourself uh, for the staff, at which was not really, they weren't, it wasn't properly instituted yet. So there was a kind of mm -hmm. mix, some people with masks, some people without masks. It was quite exciting and interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, it went well. Montreal is a, is a, a capable city, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have survived, uh, we have survived uh, COVID uh, relatively well, I guess, by world standards. Uh, mm -hmm. We're still locked down, but we're not in a, uh, in a uh, crisis situation of overrunning the hospitals or mm -hmm. uh, we're, we still have some headroom in terms of the healthcare system. Vaccination has started. Mm -hmm. I got my first one mm -hmm. recently. So uh, things are fine uh, here in COVID land. You're in uh, Berlin right now? Yeah, I'm in Berlin. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to admit that I really recently, I haven't been paying much attention to any numbers or so. And also yeah. I've not been watching the news much um, because, you know, like I do what I can to protect myself and my family and, Yeah. It seems it seems counterproductive to be too involved in uh, absolutely uh, you know in trying to understand what's going on but I had an interesting experience because I got a uh, like an invitation uh, letter to get a vaccine uh, last Monday and um, and then I made a, I made an appointment um, which was supposed to be tomorrow so like a week after I had received the the letter and um, but then they decided that the Uh, AstraZeneca um, vaccine isn't good for people under 60. Yeah. <laughs> so now like my appointment has been canceled and the new appointment for the, for the BioNTech vaccine is in, is in June. So I have two uh -huh. months to wait now. Yeah. Right <laughs> after uh, my wife and I went to get together our vaccination, um, we were triaged um, because they asked you some initial questions and then, They directed me to Pfizer, and they gave her a an Indian. We we're laughing about some some Indian knockoff. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
which is which was a, a version of AstraZeneca. I believe yeah. that's the way you say it. And yeah. um, uh, it then in the next few days, they started talking about how it could cause blood clots. And then how, oh, in fact, it doesn't cause blood, blood clots. And anyway, she's fine. Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like I said, I really, um, I have, you know, like in 2004, I got rid of my TV and uh, yeah. I stopped, oh. stopped like paying much attention to the news anyway. And also like, I'm also not really politically interested, I have to say, mm -hmm. well, maybe I'm interested, but like more in my, in, like locally. So like yes. what, I, what I do, like my community, right. you know, I'm right. interested in that, but and so, so like the COVID thing, like from the very beginning, like it, I don't know, probably the same in Canada, but like in Germany, it was like we were bombarded. Uh, and yeah. I, I've seen that at my, my parents, right? Bombarded with news, like like every fifteen minutes, like an update, which was just a repeat of the previous update yeah. in a way, yeah. right? and makes makes people crazy. And I, you it know, does. I'm so, I'm, I'm so lucky that I've never gotten into well, at least in the past almost twenty years, I haven't been in that. Uh, Mind yeah, we don't we don't have attention. television either. But I can't say that I don't follow the news. Mm -hmm. I'm quite uh, interested in in politics. But but um, you're correct to examine them from a local network out as opposed to just trying to absorb it all. It makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, but but what what a shock to be diagnosed with cancer, right? Or, or yeah, how was that for you? Well, it's not a shock because my liver has been uh, aggrieved most of my life uh, because mm -hmm. of my early drug use when I was mm -hmm. young. And uh, I, I've, I've been dealing with uh, viruses my whole life, HIV and, and hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to avoid COVID uh, mm -hmm. this, this time around. So those those are viruses I got as a result of uh, of taking shooting drugs when I was a young man, mm -hmm. and um, so they they cause some liver problems, some cirrhosis that can lead to cancer. Mm -hmm. So they've been uh, keeping an eye on me for many years, uh, but I'm a long term survivor of uh, of my viruses and. The music business and and being a redhead, an ex redhead, I've survived it all, man. <laughs> and you're you're still an amazing bass player. I, I well, I like... still play. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how amazing it is, oh, but it's a pr pretty unique sound, I have to say. Like I listened to the uh, um, the record you sent me yesterday. Oh, that's great! I'm the glad you had decadence. time. Yeah, 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 and. And really, it's funny because, like, I think the first time I I, I was like near to you was at Musik Mess in Frankfurt, um, maybe uh -huh. 2010 or 2009 or eight or something like that, and and you were playing, and I can't remember who you played with, but on Warwick stage, maybe yeah, or something like that, probably. Yeah, and and I was kind of like fascinated to see, like, because the only um real footage of you that i knew was the Napworth concert with mike oldfield right like yeah. a lot of people know that right? one so, show but, one time in your whole life you know yes, yes. <laughs> but but still like like it was interesting to see um and obviously there was like almost 30 well 30 years between the Napworth concert and when i saw you there up, up close playing and 
And it was interesting to see how like the you had this in, incredible like combination of of strength and power in how you touch the strings, but at the same time it was incredibly delicate. Like and mm. and and as if I and I know you you know you can you can tell me if that's correct, but it's looked to me as if you have the amp up loud and you play mm. soft. Right? Uh. And, and and that's the effect also that I or that that's what I'm hearing on that record as well. The uh, uh that's interesting. What fun it is to hear feedback from a musician. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you get internet feedback, and you know how yeah. arbitrary that can be. And then you get the occasional review. Um, like I saw you interviewed uh, Sid. Yes, yeah, which is awesome because he's a he's. I love him as a character, but he also gave a good review to Decadent. So I was, uh-huh. I was. Um, now he's forever in my heart. Now, uh, <laughs> but. One thing I've noticed uh, in reference to what you're saying is that um, sometimes when I think about my playing and the different records and all the, the years and all that stuff like you're referring to, I feel like there aren't very many people who ever say anything about my bass playing the way I think about my bass playing, which I don't know how accurate my own vision, you know, it's like the sound of your voice. You don't know what you sound like to other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and. And so feedback on that level is really interesting. And, and there isn't much, honestly. You, you know, there's people who say uh, they like this record or you're a great bass player or something like that, but it's not, it's not actual feedback yeah. about how, what it is you do or how. So it's yeah. fun to hear, hear you say that. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. You know, I, I think it's, it's crucial for for me as human being to get feedback from other human beings i and and not oh, just not just you ab- don't know you mean well just in general i think it's important because you know like you said we have blind spots like we don't look in, into the mirror all day right and and we're not we're not recording our voices all no. day right no. so 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 just just getting feedback i think is is extremely important and as an artist as a as a musician slash artist i find it incredibly uh, important uh, yeah to get feedback in order yeah. to in order to improve or even like um, learn more about what I'm doing right? mm-hmm. and and in a way I you, you know would, I would be interested in your opinion on this like the, the reason why I'm making music is in order to have something that I can that I can use to grow with somehow mm-hmm and uh something that challenges yeah. your frontiers to, so you have to look yeah. for new things and yeah 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 and um yeah i mean and that's like when when i when i um that's why i'm actually paying attention you know for example i i'm one of those guys who actually notices when like you know when my 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 girlfriend has a new haircut you know i see it yeah yeah, yeah, right? and I also see it when I meet other people. Like I, I kind of like scan people, you know, when I meet them, and yeah. I, and then I, I like I immediately kind of like say something that is personal and that shows them, okay, here's a per- here's somebody who is actually paying attention to who you are, and uh, and I, I find that extremely valuable, and I, you know, I would hope that more people would do that. Uh, well, that's, in the other direction. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you feel like. Uh... I know what you mean. In other words, I, 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 uh, 
I pay a lot of attention to. I think I'm like hyper sober. Sometimes it's, it's uh, too much sometimes, but I think like, I agree with you that, that uh, the most valuable resource one has is your ability to pay attention. So for others, the fact that you do pay attention, uh, I'm sure is, is very important. And it's, you know, it's a great honor to be paid attention to, right? And I think uh, we, we struggle as artists with a little bit of the, the paradox of, uh, of that, because, you know, you want to be paid attention to, and uh, hopefully in detail, you know, seriously. And yet that isn't really the initial motivation for creating the thing you do in the first place. And I've, a lot of people find that confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about the idea that uh, do they contradict each other or cause a problem um, ontologically? I mean, there's, I do want to be heard. Uh, but when I'm making the music, that's about as deep as it gets. I, I in terms of, of the public, I, I hope that they will listen, but I, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing any more than you are. I'm sure in terms of trying to please them or yeah, pander on purpose, the, the funny little version of pop, uh, there's that pop. And then there's the pop I love, right. Which is everything everything genuine and honest and, and, uh, and wonderful about all the different kinds of pop music there are. You know, I think of myself as a pop musician. I don't think of myself as a, as a, a classical musician. And I don't think of myself as a professional musician either in the sense that I mm-hmm. do it for money. Mm-hmm. So what's left just pop, but pandering is not something that I'm any good at the few times in my life when I've tried to, to do that, to say, all right, I'm going to make this, the song that will please the most amount of people or something like I've been on projects for other producers and things like that. And that's what they want to do. They want to sell some records and, and you think, well, what would that involve? And then usually I've come to the conclusion that I'm, I'm less likely to achieve that than to actually do something creative on my own. I might have a chance at that. Whereas trying to, to, to solve this puzzle of what people want. Yeah. I mean, that's too complicated for me. So it, it is complicated. Yeah. It's better to just do it, what you and your gang wants and, and mm-hmm. let, uh, you know, let do the Santana thing, let God uh, decide for us what's going to happen. And then you get feedback, like you just said, right. It mm-hmm. actually, there are frontiers there. You get a, a feedback loop of information where you did something, you didn't know exactly what it meant. And now you hear it back or you hear it back reflected from the other musicians. And then that's something new in itself. And so you get this cycle going. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, like to, to um, um, now mention another specific detail about um your your recent more recent playing i find is well obviously there's the microtonal stuff which we're, yep. we're going to talk about um, okay also i hope but um the just the way that you're bending strings 
on the bass that sounds and i have to say it because like i'm i'm not a real specialist for bass but it sounds very much like you're bending strings on a guitar mm-hmm. like there's there's like a certain certain um melodic and and like a way that you massage each individual mm-hmm. note that mm-hmm. i i really have not heard any other bass player do oh. it's uh, as a matter of fact it's it's true right so and so there's there's something there's and and yeah i mean i'm not saying this just to give you a good feeling but it's i'm happy that like it gives yeah. you a good feeling <laughs> well i'm happy that you uh i'm happy that you like it um yeah i use generally light gauge strings and mm-hmm. i I, you're interested in touch and uh, so am I. Um, and I'm not a guitar player, so I, I don't, I don't have a, I, I can play some rhythm guitar and, and maybe put some chords together and trying to compose or something, but I can't play guitar. Mm-hmm. And um, so I don't, it's not as though I've adapted a guitarist's hab- habits of bending. But mm-hmm. I do bend like a guitar does, and you know it's. Uh, I've thought about it. Um, it just gives to me. It just is a way to be more expressive, and I worry that it'll sound weak as a bass player. So I've always tried to compensate, uh, in terms of of uh, heft, you know, so mm-hmm. that there is there's some bottom some function of of beef you know so there's some mm-hmm. weight to what you're doing otherwise wh- wh- why the hell play bass you know i have really low tolerance for for people who play bass and use the instrument to to sound like other instruments to sound like guitars or pianos or or mm-hmm. uh, there are exceptions to that obviously but in general i'm like where's the beef you know and mm-hmm. And sometimes the beef is not just tone, it's also a kind of rhythmic simplicity or just holding it down. The mm-hmm. All the wonderful things about what makes bass bass, as opposed to what makes bass guitar. And yet I contradict myself because I do, I don't take a lot of solos, but I do, uh, I, I have played lots of songs where there's chords, bass chords and and bent notes like you referred to. and. It's interesting that you you mentioned it because I I think that uh, that somewhere in back of my mind I worry as to whether people notice it in a good way or notice it at all. Sometimes, you know, I, I've done whole records where the tunes were primarily written on the bass. They have structured chordal parts that are counter point where the bass is in my thumb and, and the finger picking is in the right mm-hmm. hand, the mm-hmm. kind of thing I usually hate from bass players. And, uh, and then nobody says, wow, you did a really good job of that compared to these other bass players or, or, or compared to what one would normally expect. Um, and I, I, nobody ever says anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I suppose, I suppose that's probably common to, 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 many people who put their stuff out there i'm sure you've experienced this kind of thing what you're thinking about and what the audience is thinking about is uh different (laughs) (laughs) and that's a good that's ultimately a good thing right is who's going to calculate all that's figured all that stuff out 
yeah, you know, there's no, there's no need to worry about anything because yeah. you, <laughs> you have no control anyway, right? Yeah. So, so um, just because I'm, I'm still curious, right? Like, how do you get that sound? Because it really, it really feels to me as if you have found a way to have that, as you call it, the beefiness of the sound. And at the same time, it sounds like you're not compressing the 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 performance much. Like there's dynamic, right. you have dynamics, yeah. and you have the, the the each note seems to be like very present. And you know, like that that can be like a, co a, a contradiction sometimes. But no, but I think you, you you nailed it already when you said that it's as though the amp were loud, but I wasn't playing. Uh, picking yeah. hard or playing loud mm -hmm. um and i never compress the bass except on very rare occasions when i think that some tube um some tube compression pull tech style some old school type compression might add a little more heft or a kind of vintage tone that might be appropriate for a tune mm -hmm. it's almost more for the tone than it is for the compression anyway so mm -hmm. yeah. Um, it, compression to me just kills kills the the dynamics of the instrument, and that and that kills nuance and and uh, and character. And so I don't compress anything really as as much as uh, possible. Sometimes mm -hmm. I, you know I work with engineers when we're when we're mixing, as as you know happens. You work with engineers. I, I can't engineer anything, barely can use GarageBand. But uh, there's an understood aesthetic at the beginning that we're gonna that we're gonna leave as much headroom as possible all the time so that everything can be as dynamically alive as possible, even if it means uh, recording relatively quietly and keeping lots of headroom, you know. So I think that allows you to um to have some beef, but then if you get quiet and you bend a string and you let, uh, you let the, the fret actually irritate the strings vibration, you know, by doing a little vibrato, you can get sustained like that. And if you're, if, if you're too, um, if you're too compressed or too loud or, or whatever, no, you can't hear it. You can't hear it sustaining. And sometimes on, on the uh, lighter gauge strings, it'll actually wind, you know, like uh, it, it, in a similar way, like when a guitarist gets feedback or it's just on the edge of feedback, it'll prolong the sustain and the tone will change a little bit as the harmonics kick in because of the sustain. <clears throat> you can get a kind of smaller version of that just by grinding the string against the fret and yeah. it'll change tone. It'll get, you know, and, and as it sustains from this, relatively light irritation of the fret and can make a beautiful thing yeah exactly it's, it's, it's fascinating because i um i use that that vibrato movement along the string a lot just to keep the just to extend the sustain as you say right and then like in combination like we're, as a guitarist as a lead guitarist when using a, a very high gain sound that is a very compressed sound like even without yeah. compression yeah, yeah, the well, two yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, the, and then, then it, I can basically get almost endless uh, uh, sustain mm -hmm. 
by putting, you know, like more energy into the string as it kind of fades away. And that's also why for me, in addition to like hearing what I'm playing, I've also developed this, like my idea is that my fingertips have ears or eyes or whatever. And my fingertips, they notice when the vibrate, when the vibration kind of like starts petering out. And then I can counteract that with, with vibrato, you know, mm -hmm. and bring, bring, you know, like make the note bloom again. Yeah. And blooms a nice word. Yeah. 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 And that's, def that's kind of like what I definitely, what I've been hearing, um, at least like very, very clearly on this, uh, on this decadence album. No, oh, right? great. Yeah. But also, but also back then at Musikmesse, right? It was, it was really, yeah. it was, was cool. It was cool. Like because I remember, like the first thing you played was something like really, kind of, uh, like I maybe a ballad, ballad or something like fingerstar, like mm -hmm. fingerstar guitarist, and mm -hmm. it was, it was good. It was really, really great to see that. And uh, and as I said, I didn't have any uh, opportunity to see you play live. Um, um, you know, with Gong or, you know, right. that, that, that would have, would have, I would have loved that. You know, I was, I was too young, you know, and, and like for me, really my, my active involvement in like going to shows was like really only started in the early nineties, like pretty mm -hmm. late, like in my, when I, I was uh, 20 something. Mm -hmm. you know? so, um, so how you're, about 50 am i right Somewhere? 40 48 still yeah 48 okay yeah yeah, yeah. But, but soon soon <laughs> soon gonna turn 50. yeah i was born in 72 so um right you know, like i i grew up with my my mother listening to what is now called classic rock right so that's sort of like what i grew up with and the beatles like the usual yeah. stuff yeah yeah right? and and for but you, it would have like, meant that you were yeah. 16 in 88 yes is that correct yeah. so then you were bucking the trend by listening to classical rock you were bucking going against the the 80s yeah aesthetic. yeah 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 definitely like i was um well you know it was already in my early childhood that my mother was listening to the radio a lot and kind of like mm. she was making mixtapes and stuff but then really um for me, it was my my uncle who was who was uh, who had a record player, and he had um, like really like back then esoteric stuff like Andrea Andreas Vollenweider, like harp kind of stuff, and like world music basically, mm -hmm. you know, world music and and jazz rock and and um, also Mike Oldfield, you know, and that mm -hmm. that kind of world. And I got introduced to that, and but then I only discovered like. Like like in the late eighties, um, my actual love for music and and sort of like well not my lo love for music but the fact that I was actually a musician, mm -hmm. which is uh, um, I know that, that I know that the people pretty or pretty early on as a child kind of like already have an idea yeah. that they how was that for you like when when did you um, know that you were gonna have uh, well a life I, in music. I, I don't know when I fell in love with it, but I, I played a cello when I was in school, uh, in the school orchestra, completely amateur, childlike uh, cello. And um, I switched from that. All we did was learn little Vivaldi things. And, and I, I, did, I do remember the pleasure of getting those patterns organized 
you know, and, and mm-hmm. how that when you could finally do it right, it was a pleasure. But I got a bass when I was about 14. It was a EB, Gibson EB3. And um, all I wanted to do then was was play rock, like like be in a band like like the Allman Brothers or Hendrix or or who were the earliest ones? Zappa too, um, mm-hmm. Pink Floyd, um, and that. Uh, led me just like as a, a you know a young teenager wanting to play in a go to the garage and make lots of noise and 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 play rock that sort of led me to more improvisational stuff eventually and i got into jazz rock in my in my later teens and i always had a um you know i was thinking i was talking to it about my wife the other night we, were, we listened to music often at dinner um and I tell little musical stories. We've had a year of dinners together every night. So um, somebody's got to tell stories, right? And I was mentioning the fact that there were, that there's classic rock that I listen to now, which I find even better than I did then. Um, Like I used to get irritated with Jimmy Page sometimes, and I never do now. I just adore it now and same with zappa i used to he used to irritate me with his kind of uh mixing it too loud and 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 being kind of uh what's the word um conga yeah it it's not sloppy and it's not punky but it's just kind of uh chaotic Sometimes and I and that used to irritate me. I, w- I wanted things to be orderly when I was young, and I was at my most chaotic, which is interesting. Mm. Now I embrace uh, the uh, the craziness of those guys uh, totally. I, I don't have any um, insecurities about whether or not they're tight or whether or not they're accurate or or anything. I just want to know if they're rocking the house or not, you know, and. <laughs> uh, but my point was that I, I noticed that I always liked songs that had a good groove and that spent some time in an instrumental area for a moment, you know, like an Allman Brothers tune when then they would just blow for a long time or same with Hendrix or and then it would bother me when they when they would switch out of the groove, like to some whole new part of the song that was different, that was based on a different feel. And they mm-hmm. kind of messed with the thing that I was enjoying, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I rem- I was thinking with her about how th- I think that was something that led me towards instrumental music and jazz rock and jazz in general, eventually, and even ultimately to minimalism, where uh, where I began to really. And uh, I play with Lamont Young now, which is kind of the the pinnacle of trying to play minimalism you know it, it sometimes sometimes it's so minimal that it 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 just goes beyond your ability to judge what's happening around you it's mm-hmm. you just don't know how to the only thing left to do sometimes with Lamont that's one of the reasons I love playing with him is to suspend judgment because otherwise it makes no sense at all it's just mm-hmm. nothing happening or it's too arbitrary or it's taking too long 
and you have to let go. And you say, you know, you, you say the short version of the serenity prayer, fuck it. <laughs> and just, yeah. it's, he, he, he taught me some serious things about, uh, about letting go. Um, mm -hmm. And and it's through extreme minimalism that that uh, that I was forced to encounter that. But anyway, the whole point was like getting into getting into a bass and then getting into instrumental music. It was it was out of a classic rock that it that it flowered. And so you said like you were like. 13 playing cello right yeah and got got the bass you got the bass and that was it for the cello i mean i played a little bit more but uh, no <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. and so then then like like um um then things must have kind of escalated relatively quickly for you right like when when did you play your first professional gig At which age? Um, well, I started playing uh, around New York in when I was like 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, and I had some I had some illusion about the idea that I could be a professional bass player. But, um, you know, so I had a few experiences playing jingles and I played in some bands around the city, some, uh, some fun things, but, uh, I, I think of it as a nightmare period. Honestly, now when I think back on it, I don't remember any particularly good experiences. I, uh, I studied a little bit with Buster Williams. That was, that was okay, but he, he barely said five words to me. And so, He would play, I would play, he would grunt, and that was that was about it. Although, you know, I did pick up some things from him watching him play. But I only did, went to a few lessons anyway with him. And it wasn't long after that that Pierre, I met Pierre Morlin, the drummer from Gong in New York. And uh, it was like a, a dream come true because I had this inclination to play instrumental music. And then all of a sudden, one of the, you know, the great instrumental drummers of Europe uh, asked me to join the band. So it was, it was awesome. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I knew I, I would never survive doing jingles. And I was trying to play these jingles on, I only had one bass at that time, a fretless. And I would go into these uh, jingle houses through the, graces of a friend who was a successful composer of jingles and he would like bump me in up in the line because you know there's this whole hierarchy of who gets mm -hmm. the session and all this mm -hmm. bullshit and and i would i would get on these jingles and then the, and the engineers would couldn't deal with the fact that it was a fretless like what the hell you know they used to call the the in the union they called the bass player either an acoustic bass player or a fender there wasn't there was no uh mm -hmm. electric bass player he mm -hmm. played acoustic or fender and uh 
I would go to the union and, and my friend who was writing and playing piano and he would get these humongous checks from the union for these commercials like Burger King or something. And I would get I, I wouldn't even get the amount that he paid in dues for the because mm-hmm. you had to pay your dues at the counter, this mm-hmm. police like grilled counter where you would go on at Roseland in New York and and pick up your your check. Your, and he would get like four thousand dollars and I would get like two hundred dollars for the mm-hmm. session. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a lot of money for me at the time. I, I thought that was phenomenal. Until I saw his check, you know. Anyway, it, it wasn't meant for me that that world. Um, so when Pierre kind of like saved me, that was that was awesome. I, can I can you tell to, tell me more about how how you met Pierre? Or he had he had come to New York to visit some friends, and I had those friends in common. And that's how we met. We played a little bit in in New York. And I think um, he was switching over to running the show himself from having been through these kind of transitional albums where David Allen left and it was the psychedelic era was ending and he was more into uh, the jazz rock thing. He had done Gazoos, which was the... uh, It's not the first kind of Pierre Moreland-ish gong album because there's Shamal also, but mm-hmm. uh, he had played with Alan and it had gone full instrumental and and when I he you know he played that album for me in New York to show me what I was getting involved in and it was the first time I ever had heard Alan. It was the first time I'd heard European jazz rock, you know, I was just unbelievably, um, it was like listening to alien music or something to me. Mm-hmm. I was into earth, wind and fire and, and, and Miles Davis and things mm-hmm. like that. And, and this, this pristine, clear as a whole different kind of aesthetic. Uh, and plus Alan for the first time, you know, it's pretty, particular mm-hmm. and he play he rips on that record too mm-hmm. uh, so yeah i was like and i think you know i think pierre was i think he liked my plan because i all i wanted to do i was an american who wanted to play tight i think that's the mm-hmm. i didn't want to just feel it you know like so many americans at the time talked you know you talked about chops and feel in those days i'm really talking about a long time ago i hope it doesn't sound too insane but <laughs> but um i'm talking about uh you know new york in 75 76 around that time and to Pierre was not, he was interested in like getting the good part of American playing, which would mean some soul, some, maybe some funkiness. I'm not quite sure what words he would use to say it, some feel, Mm -hmm. but um, you couldn't just want to like, you couldn't say, leave me alone. I got, I'm going to do my thing. Right. That, that's not the way we made music with gong at all. It was more like classical percussion, you know, And there was always somebody working their technique and using pads and they were all trained at the 
the Conservatoire de Percu à Strasbourg. And, uh, but I think I, I represented the kind of change. Um, and so we got along great. And I brought some funkiness and he, he brought all that, that uh, tightness and precision and clarity. You know, I, I had a conversation conversation a few days ago with a bass player from the UK called John Poole, and we came upon this concept of a, like a part, like, you know, if, if the, the thing you play is a part, like it's something that has to be the way it has to be played in order for the music to work, right? That's, that's sort of like maybe... In order for it to mean, be something, it yes, has to, yes, it has right. to be a, a part, right? And so it's yeah. not, it's not just like it's not just, it doesn't just say C major, A minor, D major, right? It right. says, it says, okay, you have got this rhythm, you've got these, you know, these particular pitches, and and then there's also like how do these pitches obviously relate to what nowadays is called the grid or like, yeah. you know, the, the pulse and right. then, then you working with, as you said, like with like uh, classically trained drummers, right there, 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 it was sort of like, I guess you, you kind of got into something that was sort of like a real, like melting pot of, yeah. of, as you say, feel and classical tradition. Well, and it's interesting you say the grid because the they this is all pre-quantization or or even sequencing. We didn't even have sequences, um, but they played uh, in a more quantized way than 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 the way I would have thought of it in terms of American feel or funk or jazz feel, and. And they, the fact that there was lots of marimbas and, and vibraphones also makes a grid-like thing where you have uh, lots of 16th note stuff and it has to fit together one way or another, right? They're going to, yeah. you have yeah. to think about how they're going to fit. You're not just blowing, right? So I love that stuff. And um, it's interesting because uh, to me, that was like the, the greatest manifestation of jazz rock that I could think of because jazz rock, even by the mid to late seventies was starting to get burnt. In my opinion, it had gone through the, the, the extremely um, creative initial period uh, with Mahavishnu and, and, and even Hendrix, you could say, and, and the earliest mile stuff. And, And now it had become sort of formalized. And although there were still great things happening, like Weather Report and, and some others, it was beginning to become uh, formalized in a way. And and it had become all about chops, too. And and uh, so to play with Pierre and, and that kind of composition and uh, interlocking parts was almost a, like a new freedom for me. Uh, although, you know, we're writing a new record right now and it's almost finished. My, my young guitar player, who's the same one you heard on mm -hmm. Decadence, who I've been working with the last few years. And my tunes are almost all extremely open and, and, uh, they're in tempo, but they're much freer than his tunes. And he comes from a strict collegiate jazz background. 
And I met him when he was 20 and now he's 20, almost 29. And his tunes are all these gong like tunes. They're full of, uh, full of connected sections of patterns that develop and that have the, the rationale for them is, has nothing to do with jazz, like improvisational in the moment uh, creativity. They're carefully composed and, and mine are more like jazz tunes in some ways, in the sense that I'm, I, I really want certain minimalist patterns to be a uh, way of uh, conveying a certain emotional ambience. And I spent a lot of time talking about the kind of ambience it might be, but not in musical terms, more in, in descriptive uh, terms of emotional things. Um, and, and by showing him too, like, like this is the kind of thing I'm hearing over this section where I'm really only emphasizing four notes and, and, and it gives it a feel. That particular uh, emotional uh, state and 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 then we'll allow that to trans transfer to another emotional state later on. And how we do it could be really different every night, or it's much more jazzy in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's ironical, I think. Um, you know, the funny thing is that I, that I, I yeah, I made I made that uh, observation even on the decadence record, where like it's the two of you writing. You've yeah, we wrote everything. And, yeah, and so it's it it even there I noticed it. Oh. That you that you have kind of like, uh, and you know maybe it's <laughs> just like maybe it's it's a sign of maturity, right? To let go of the patterns <laughs> or to just to leave more space or whatever. But yeah. I, I but I also understand like the the attractiveness of say like a more pattern based or like more in, you know more interlocking musical mm -hmm. approach, especially for people who come from jazz and have a chance to discover something out outside of traditional jazz yeah you know? so um so i think it's it's great that he has the opportunity to write these these pieces that he can play with you right yeah we're, it, we're having a good time doing it yeah 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 uh, amazing so um so let me just uh, because i'm i'm curious um so just well a couple of months ago um gary husband sent me a tune like an mp3 of a track that uh uh, Gary Allen and you improvised, or not improvised, an Allen tune that you guys played in the studio right. um, together. And um, um, so you met Allen through Pierre, and you guys right. had made a record already, right? Or yeah, how we was had it? already start. I had already begun with Gong, and then uh -huh. on the first record that I did with them, Allen played. And, mm -hmm. and then he did some shows too. That's mm -hmm. how I met him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because like, um, because I heard, I heard, I can't remember the name of the tune now, but it, I heard, the things I heard, you see. yeah, with like, exactly the something about see. a gun, right? Like, yeah, the yeah. Long okay. title, right? <laughs> yeah. That's the long title version. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and um, because I've been working with Gary as like, like doing mastering uh, and restoration work for him. Uh -huh. um, and and so I, I heard quite a few versions of that of that tune, but it, I I really I really enjoyed hearing you play that music. I have to say it was uh, it was fascinating. You know, was was there anything anything more that you you guys did together, or was that just a one time thing? The no, trio? I think we did another tune, but I don't have any any uh, copies of it. 
And mm -hmm. we only have that one because those are lingering cassettes of, you know, take it home and listen to it type thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose the that Virgin probably has them somewhere. Um, mm. But the, we didn't do a lot anyway. It was a it, it was more of a a uh, test to see um, if we liked playing together. And um, I remember I had to choose between the possibility of playing more with Alan or playing with Mike Oldfield, mm -hmm. and just because of scheduling, not, not because of aesthetic reasons or anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, that was all happening at around the same time, um, those sessions, because that was 80, I think. I think when we did that tune, it might've been late 79. Mm -hmm. 80 was when I played with Mike. And it was also the last uh, year of hard uh, regular touring with uh, Pierre Marlin's Gong. We did yeah. some more later in the 80s. We got back together. But um, um, it was a seminal year in 1980 because I played with Mike, I played with Gong, and I played with Alan, and, and um, I was busy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you were still in your early 20s, right? I was 26. 26. Yeah. I would still consider that to be young, like to have that sort of uh, opportunity, let's say, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, although I do remember, I'm not sure why, but I remember thinking when I was, that now I'm 26 and I can't be good for my age anymore. I don't know why. <laughs> completely <laughs> arbitrary bullshit you know but i do remember thinking that there has to be some age when you can no longer be good for your age mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so i decided it was 26. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey, so um the uh the re record that uh mike toured in 80 was platinum right right and um, with with some other tunes but that's yes. what he was promoting, yeah. Yeah, for sure. But um, and and you are credited on the album, also as a bass player. I am. Player. Distinguishing who does what on that record is not that easy. That's that's why I'm asking. Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> he was doing so many overdubs. Sometimes he would play bass himself. Sometimes mm -hmm. he would play bass only for one section himself. Mm -hmm. And he could do whatever he wants, you know, as Mike Holfield. So by the time the album was finished, it was hard for me to say exactly what who was doing what in the bass end on, on that album in particular. Um, mm -hmm. So I like that album. And uh, I think it kind of, don't you think it stands out as kind of peculiar, that record? You know, it's really funny. Like it's, I would say it's the, my most listened to record of the last 10 years. That like one? because yeah, there was there was like a, a deluxe edition like re-release yeah, right, uh, about yeah. about twelve years ago or something. I don't know. Yeah. And I I've been listening to it like you know a lot. And just yeah. you know also like my my daughter uh, was born uh, like one and a half years ago. Like platinum became sort of like one of the tunes like the side A that yeah. we've you know yeah, listened yeah. to a lot. You know, it's it's funny. Yeah, no, I love that record and it's peculiar. Yeah, but it's 
But you know, uh, Marcus, all my memories of that period are have to do with the live shows, and I have almost no memories of the record. You go in, you play uh, some overdubs, and leave, and Mike takes care of all the rest. And yeah, yeah. yeah. But the shows we did lots of shows, and we played those tunes. So I have tons of uh, of you know of like visceral type memories of 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 what they yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. The pleasure of playing them live, you know. Yes. Yeah, and that that was certainly like a really, uh, really outstanding band, incredible, incredible musicians uh, throughout, and uh, and like especially that Napworth um, performance came out came out great. Like you know, I wouldn't you wouldn't expect such a festival like with the logistics and uh, you know. Yeah, like it was the, a mess, but yeah, yeah it was. A, it turned out to be a good show. Yeah. 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 So. Um, having this this sort of like because we like we started out talking about feedback right like getting feedback <laughs> about what you were doing and yeah. then you're suddenly like you're in a situation where you have like i don't know uh, 80,000 people at a festival like that and like did yeah. did you did you uh did that have an impact on you that you uh um sort of but it's we would have to talk about my my state of mind at the time, which was was which was, um, you know, I don't I don't think I had I have lots of impressions of the period, but I was doing lots of drugs and and my preoccupations were those of a of a uh, chaotic young man. They weren't the preoccupations of somebody carefully considering mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. context of what's happening to them. Um, and, you know, a few, just like four years later, when I was 30, um, I bottomed out heavily from drug abuse and, uh, sobered up and then I've been sober ever since. And, and, uh, and so I have had time to, to reflect back on those things, but, but you're, all I'm trying to say is that when I think about what happened then now, I think about it with, with the, the context of all these years of sobriety, not what I was thinking then. So it's hard to answer the question. You know, uh, I saw all those people out there and I, and, and I was, I was pissed off at my amp that day. I remember that. And, and during one of the soundtracks, I actually pushed it over so that it fell back on itself and and then all of Mike's roadies had to run over and it was kind of prima donna bullshit, you know, and and I remember being concerned with wh what kind of party we were going to have afterwards, you know, so it's it's not the coolest things to talk about. Really, no, 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 no. I remember being impressed by the helicopter, how that how it um, the engine sound didn't change when it took off. It stayed at the same RPM. And I realized that, that oh, that's a helicopter thing. They just changed the uh, angle of the blades, mm -hmm. and the, but the engine stays at the same RPM. And that was a, I love cars, you know. I'm totally obsessed <laughs> with cars, and and I was like, wow, you're moving. It's almost like a sailboat. You you start accelerating, and nothing, but nothing happened. I remember things like that more than I do. Uh, you know, when I played a show in those days, it was strictly my 
what dominated my consciousness, the whole thing was playing in time with Pierre. That's all. That's that's like 70 percent of my consciousness. And then there's a little bit left over for for other things. It's probably more like 90 when you're actually yeah, playing. Yeah, and yeah. I don't remember much else but that. And then. And then, you know, then we would party. So. I remember things like to what degree Mike was rich and we were poor, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he was wearing a watch that's worth more than I probably have made in my whole life in music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and then he had three or four mansions and studios and he had a mm -hmm. room that was full of, uh, of the most exotic uh, remote controlled airplanes, for example. And I was only interested in his cars. Um, and we had some good times around that. Uh, we would go to Shepparton to rehearse. And sometimes we'd switch cars. He would give me his, his BMW. And he would take my rented Mini, things like that. We had, <laughs> so the, that, those are the kinds of things I remember much more than, than the, the, I, the, the memories of a child, in a sense, you know, of a, of a of a teenager as more than <laughs> proper you know I'm, I'm learning a lot about myself um doing these you know like having these conversations and what i've just noticed is that even though i might may ask a question about like i may ask a specific question about the show but obviously i'm i'm much more interested in you than in Mm -hmm. the actual answer to the question so that's yeah. why what you just <laughs> said was perfect right like yeah you know obviously this um the I, I don't know any details about your drug addiction okay but um it was very prominent in the music business um for a very yeah. long time and probably probably still is to an extent um and i i i don't think that a lot of um fans right like are even uh aware of the the fact that maybe you guys i'll say right you guys back then didn't really uh register much of <laughs> what what you were actually bringing into the world because of the bubble that you guys were in right right and, i think that's fair to say yeah yeah <laughs> probably i i don't know i'm just i'm just uh making things oh, up that, I think that's true a little bit, though. Don't you agree, Marcus, that it's a little bit true that what you're doing and and how others see it and then the historical perspective it might have 20, 30 years later is, is unpredictable. It's not it's not consciously created, you know, in any more than, you know, I always hope that my tunes will be more than the sum of their parts and more than the sum of my initial creative ideas even that they'll that they'll blossom in some way that something unexpected better <laughs> as opposed to worse will happen yeah. and I, that's generally the way i feel about life i don't get it particularly and i hope that it turns out for the best and that's that's the way i feel about uh trying to analyze those early things i there's no way i can contextualize them uh beyond you know, new information comes in over the years, like certain records have uh, sustained their their impact more than others, things like that. 
Um, but I learn as I go about what it means uh, and trying to compare that to what our initial I creative ideas were. Um, it's, it's too complex. It doesn't, it's just interesting. I, I, can't, I can't connect the dots in any kind of causal way. You know, it's it's great. Let me let me ask you in response to that. Let me ask you a very uh, a particularly naive question from uh, the standpoint of a of a fanboy of Mike Oldfield's music. Okay, <laughs> so so because like this is like, and you, just just be honest, right? So, did you have some sense of the greatness? of that music back then. And I particularly say that as a fanboy, okay? Yeah, I'll like try not to... as a not as a general, not as a general statement. But like like right. um it, because um like from my own experience being on stages and playing great music, yeah, is that there sometimes, not all the time, sometimes you get that that sort of like that um, spiritual involvement, let's say, yeah. with with that sound, with that, like you guys, like your performance of Omadon, for example. Yeah, know, that, awesome. It is, it's un unbelievable, right? Yeah, and, and, it, was, and it, it, it is a kind of spiritual thing, I agree. How to answer that? <laughs> you know, there, 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 there are different sources of, of, of uh, stimulation. There's the act, you know, I cannot say that it was like a normal gig because, um, first of all, everything's so big, rehearsing at Shepperton, personal Westlake monitors for each musician, you mm -hmm. know, with a wooden horn and everything is so rich, is so exotic uh, to have those means. Uh, so that was all pretty impressive. And playing Wembley and and Stadthalles and in Europe and things like that, it's it's that's impressive too. I I think in terms of the significance of it, like to really try to answer your question, it was there were two levels. One is that kind of um, how big it was, massively big, uh, lots of people, lots of gear, lots of money, all that stuff. And then the other one was that that concert that you like so much, the one at uh, Nebworth, was uh, was a spiritually uplifting concert. We we played lots of them, but that one there were moments that Mike, I think, in that that documentary that went along with that, he mentioned a kind of uh, festival atmosphere of celebration. You know, of humans getting together and and thinking good things, and and uh, there was that atmosphere, and so to be at the kind of uh, fulcrum of it while we're playing uh, was quite magic. And uh, and there were, you know, when 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 the piano plays the riff for Tube La Bells and sixty thousand people or whatever it was wake up to that, they hear it for the first time and they go. Oh, Yeah, you know, it was it was awesome. I, I won't deny that. Mm -hmm. And some of Mike's bass lines are still uh, among my favorite bass lines. They're melodic and and uh, and evocative. And one, I love playing them. You know, mm -hmm. he wanted me to play them more with a pick than I wanted to, but <laughs> I refused. And 
but I, you know, I cherish some of those baselines, like an Amadon. Mm -hmm. And so it's those two levels. One is, sure, it's, it's epic in the sense that I had never played shows that were that big before. And I haven't really played any of that big sense either, mm -hmm. not, not for that quantity of people. But on the other hand, the spiritual side of it, I have played shows with uh, Gongzilla, for example, where there was like nobody in the club mm -hmm. and had awesome shows mm -hmm. um, where mm -hmm. Bond, just for some reason, the guitar player was on fire and, and, and the thing just got heavier and heavier and, and we all went with it. And, and it could have been two people or, or, or 10 or whatever. And or just the barman mm -hmm. and and we still had a good show and and the music was uh i know it was good you know so i don't really think that they they are uh, directly connected the two yeah. things yes yes yeah you know for me for me it's even even when you know last year i had to play a couple streaming shows at where i was at home with my guitar on my you know, in my lap, basically, and my laptop laptop was acting as the camera and yeah, the yeah. recording device and and the processing for the sound and everything. And like, but when I actually get into the zone of performing, like, it's almost I get into this sort of like, um, um, focus, state of focus, of, mm -hmm. of intense focus, where really, um, I couldn't care less what's happening around me or if anybody's listening at all, right? It's just, I'm just, just making the decision to perform basically, you know, and, and like a funny thing about me is that I really don't like playing, which people, some people don't understand, right? I don't enjoy playing, but when I, when I decide to, then I do it yeah. and I do it properly. Right. Yeah. So, um, oh, so I, that's, can, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. There, so there are many paradoxes like that. But go ahead, yeah. You know, I just was, was just going to say, like, okay, like being on a stage uh, with great musicians and 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 playing for sixty thousand people. Well, you still have to kind of like, uh, as you said, like ninety percent of your attention goes to locking in with Pierre, right? Yeah. So what's what's left? I mean, do do you really like? Do you really see people's faces? No, you don't. No. Right? Like everything's like 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 everything outside of the music is sort of like has a soft focus. Yeah, and the, and the music gets the gets the detail, yeah. right? Which and, is why you can achieve it in a club with with nobody there too. Yeah, Sometimes, exactly. Not you know, there's most yeah. most of the time you don't get into this flow state state, yeah. but but a flow state is a state of meaningfulness, mm -hmm. I I think. And when you're doing something meaningful, that's it. It's it, it it's meaningful. So it doesn't really matter what the uh, what the yeah circumstances are yeah exactly exactly yeah it's um i i think for me it's been sort of like i mean a lot of people say that that music has been a lifesaver for them right and and uh um i wouldn't i wouldn't i i wouldn't totally agree to that that it saved my life but it has provided this this field in which i i'm sort of like allowing myself to have that hyper focus, right? right? So, so like like this thing that I do really enjoy, and and the funny thing is that like you know, 
nowadays where like I have to look after my daughter in the mornings, like till 3, 3 p.m. actually, right? And and then maybe I teach a couple lessons and then there's dinner and, you know, taking the, the, the baby to bed and then like uh, maybe watch a show together, like, you know, with my girlfriend and yeah. then she goes to bed. I maybe practice like 30 minutes of, of touch guitar and then then after that, like, and I'm super tired and I should actually go to bed, but then I start chilling. So then yeah. I'm actually awake on the sofa all by myself alone at night when it's quiet. Yeah. And I get a little bit of that focus, right. That yeah. I need in order to be happy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and that's, I, that, I think that's what music does to me. Like, like, you know, I have the chance to sometimes in a professional, uh, 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 well, well there, you know, people commission me, yeah uh, actually to be focused and yeah and, and yeah, yeah. i love that you know that <laughs> yeah yeah i know what you mean well one, one of my favorite moments uh of of the whole process of making a record is is mixing because i don't have to commit to playing well and i get mm -hmm. to make tons of decisions <laughs> i love it i don't have to worry about whether i played well or not and i you know whether i let go sufficiently or whether i'm being overly technical or any of that bullshit. all i have to worry about is whether i like this or that and that's <laughs> it's just such fun you know oh, no yeah 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 three thousand decisions and and they all come true to some you know more or less and mm. yeah that's my favorite part but it, it's a it's a it's not a flow state so mm -hmm. The sacred part is when it's so meaningful. That's just fun. You know, the sacred part is when you're actually embodying it, when you're playing, when you, when it becomes an action, not just an idea. Right. And then mm -hmm. that's, that's where the significant stuff happens. And I think it's why a lot of people are, are, are crazy from, from COVID. Um, the, it's forced us all into isolation and, and it's in community that, that, that you can put things into action. You know, it's like the community of your group or, or whatever it is, or that festival feeling or the communion, you know, and to be isolated, uh, uh, it's hard to get into a flow state <laughs> when you're isolated, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. And, you know, that's, that's also why, um, being creative, like truly creative, has been harder for yeah. me. And, yeah. The whole idea that you take advantage of COVID to practice, it just doesn't doesn't ring with me at all, you know? Yeah. I mean, the practice is, is maybe easier for me than writing, right? Like, because I, I have several modes of writing. And the mode that I would prefer to actually use... Uh, for upcoming project would be like the intuitive approach, you know, just to write on the instrument, like, you know, and see or what happens. Piano and see what happens yeah. rather than, than uh, approaching things from a more of a conceptual perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, but, but uh, it's been impossible with the, um, with COVID around because like, it's almost as if all the worries, uh, you know, around me sort of disturb my, um, energy <laughs> you know like there's you know it's like like I, i'm picking up all these these this this nervous energy and then mm -hmm. somehow like yeah i just just don't feel like um mm -hmm. yeah, i well, think i think the ideas are all there you know that's that's why it's so crazy i think it's all there it's just a matter of just 
finding the the time and the the, the moment to actually yeah. get it out. Yeah. Well, I've never been very good at that. I uh, I I wait to you know, and sometimes I worry about my son. He seems to wait to see what he's going to do a little mm -hmm. too much, and and uh, I wait to see what I'm going to do a little too much. Also, I hope I didn't teach him to do that. To to. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's great value in 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 waiting and um, silence and doing nothing. And I I try to remind myself that because I often feel like I should be doing more, and um, that I should be more disciplined about setting aside time to do specific things. And 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 I don't really. Um, but it's another one of those things where where. What's really important is that whatever it is that you do do, even if there's only a little bit of it, is uh, is meaningful mm -hmm. to me and and hopefully to others. And I raised up my kids. They're they're in thirty ish. My two mm -hmm. kids. Um, and I remember how much energy it took when they were your kids' age. I'm glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, it's and th this is not a joke. Like the 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 night of the birth of my daughter, when I went to bed that night, was the first time in my life, and I was forty seven, right? First time in my life that I felt tired, that I was actually tired. Mm. Right? It's ridiculous. Right? So you really don't. Yeah, yeah. I I didn't know what it meant to be tired. Up yeah. until that point, and yeah. well, it hasn't had that feeling hasn't left me since her birth. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good thing. I also remember pushing my my boy around in his uh, little little uh, capitalist, you know, uh, baby carriage, and mm -hmm. I I was so proud. I thought it was special that I had a kid, you know, and and I was walking down the sidewalk with my kid, and I was a father, and he's the kid, and it was awesome, yes. you know. Yeah, it's, it's the, those are those are that's meaningful mm. it is enjoy mm. it mm. i do i do i do hey, so um so the work um the, the the closer relationship with pierre lasted for 10 years or something or well it lasted really intensely for about six years which were the first six years we did uh five records and uh then there was a, a, a breakup of the band i also um went into treatment for drug addiction during that period of like two or three years and um after that we got back together in the in the late 80s around 88 mm -hmm where he had found some supporters of the music and he was playing with some Swedish guys, tribute members mm -hmm. of that band. Mm -hmm. And we did a couple of records uh, and some shows uh, in 88, I think it was. I also, Pierre and I also played with Borelli in that, in that time period, mm -hmm. did some shows. Pierre did one record with him, I think. Um, and then after that, it was it was done. We, we didn't do mm -hmm. any more. Uh, I, I started in 94, I think it was. I started Gongzilla with Bon Lozaga, who had played guitar in Gong with me. 
mm -hmm. um, from the early days. And we had Benoit Merlin, Pierre's brother, playing keyboards, tuned key perk. Mm -hmm. And um, we did that for about 14 years, Bon and mm -hmm. I. Mm -hmm. um, and that's from mid-90s all the way up to like 2010. Mm -hmm. That was a long Gongzilla period. We did five records. Our output was not quite as intense as, uh, as it was with Gong. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and also during that time, I played a lot with John Cattler, the, the, uh, and I still do, the guy who introduced me to just intonation and alternate tuning and all that. Mm -hmm. Made several records with him and had a bunch of custom basses made so I could play in that tuning system. Mm -hmm. I got obsessed with it for quite some time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the, um, the uh, like treatment you, like the rehab you did for the drug yeah, well, addiction, was, was that... Um, like, like, how did that go for you? I mean, was that you, was that uh, a long struggle, or was that like more no, of a? No, I was quickly relieved of my obsession with drugs. Mm -hmm. Because, like, I I have no personal experience. Uh, yeah, you know? well, I so, mean, it's, we could have a whole podcast about yeah, yeah. about addiction and and stuff. Uh, it, it was a pretty straightforward. I went to uh, a treatment center in, in Minnesota called Hazelden, and I uh, I've been sober ever since, so it worked. <laughs> you know the re the reason why why I asked this is because you used the word uh, obsessed. You were obsessed with the with the tuning uh, systems, yeah. right? And so I, that's why that that any, drugs too. Yeah, yeah, that's you that's know, why the, I, I think the altered. Uh, what's the easy way to describe that? The, it, it, drugs for me are, are, are a kind of a unsatisfactory way to look for meaning. And, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, we can spend a lot of time talking about the different ways that people think of it more as an avoidance technique. Ultimately, it is a way of avoiding responsibility, uh, whether, whatever the pathological reasons are for being excessive. Um, that is what happens is you avoid responsibility, but there's also the me, you know, it is a, it is a way it's a path towards a kind of, uh, flow state or meaningfulness, altered perceptions, altered reality where you want to know, not just psychedelic questions like what am I, but also, also what can I feel and, and how good can I feel? How, how bad can I feel? Um, all that stuff is in there and, and yet it's all uh, artificially created through the use of psychotropic chemicals, right? Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean that the feelings are not real because they are and the experiences are real. And I believe that they're as real as any other experiences that you might have uh, in life, in sobriety, they're real experiences, but the, the, the sought after states, whether they're solutions to, to feelings of inadequacy or whether it's just running away or whether it's seeking 
whatever combination of those things can't last. It's an artificial road to meaningfulness, the meaningfulness of escaping from your own feelings of inadequacy or the meaningfulness of finding altered states of perception or whatever it is. Um, just knowing the boundaries, you know, it's, it's interesting to explore if, if your personality is an open kind of personality, you want to see what's new, what, what's dangerous, what's undiscovered. And, and I, I, a lot of my drug taking was like that when I was young, mm -hmm. uh, it got more sorted as I, as I got more, more and more involved and it, it, the color of it changed as I, as I, I don't want to say graduated, but as I as I left uh, more kind of psychedelic things and and got more involved in <laughs> heroin and cocaine, you know. So mm -hmm. whatever those those things, um, got had to be transferred in some way, so that the in the inherent suffering got became meaningful you know the inherent suffering in my life i think there's inherent suffering everywhere but in my version of it had to be transmuted some way and uh i i couldn't say that it's because of music because i i i loved music as much before i sobered up as i did after sobering up it didn't really change that much and it's just that I had to find a way to counter the inherent suffering with something meaningful enough to make it worthwhile. And that I would have to say to you is, is a spiritual thing. It's not a, a music thing or discipline or some sort of particular knowledge that now I know this. So, oh, okay, I'm convinced it's a good idea to not hurt myself anymore. It's a good idea to be responsible. That is, it doesn't work for me anyway, rationally like that. Um, I had to find a kind of faith that in the future that would um, compensate for giving up something that I, I, uh, was used to and cherished which was getting high and mm -hmm. and somehow i did um i mean the treatment worked and um uh yeah that's a that's the best i can do for the moment that's 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 uh incredible incredible like i i um the first i think time of it is a kind of grace marcus it's a kind of luck um from above that uh that that just tilts me a little more towards the the light as opposed to towards the the dark and i'm um, i feel lucky to be tilted towards the light so far in my life um so that and by that i don't mean anything glorious by that i just mean that i'm optimistic that life is good life is good it's a good mm -hmm. thing mm-hmm mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Like, I, I have never heard anybody um, describe it this way. And this clearly, um, um, I, you know, like I've, I've heard many people, well, I know 
few people who are alcoholics who, you know, um, don't drink anymore, but they smoke a lot, you know, like stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so anyway, um, so I, I, originally I was going to, I was going to ask like, how does music fit into the world of addiction really? And is there, is there like sort of any meaningful relationship? And then you already answered the question that there's not. So, so we don't have to go there, but you know, like in terms of like the, um, your life, I would like, so you were born in New York, right? You are no, I was born in Virginia, but when I was little, I moved to, to New York with my father. Mm-hmm. When I was okay. 12, yeah, he and I moved to New York. And so then from New York meeting, meeting Pierre, you, you went to France, did you? Yeah, or, and, went and to what? Paris and then to Strasbourg mm-hmm. and uh, practiced. We signed with Virgin and kind of re-upped the, the whole process and, and um, later to Arista. And it was kind of, I got to taste the end of, uh, of old major label type productions, you know? Yes. Yes. And, um, about like, um, um French as a language. Did you, did, did you always, yeah, I have... learned when I learned when I was with gong and, uh, and then, and now I'm married to a Quebecois since, since not long after I sobered up. So for about 36 years, mm-hmm. um, and she, we speak French at home. The kids went to school in French, mm-hmm. uh, but they are bilingual um, because of me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you met your wife um, before you got sober, or after just you before? Got yeah, it's yeah. a <laughs> that's an important element if you're doing a bio type thing. Yeah, she met me while I was still getting high. And it's been so long that I've been sober that many people don't like my children, never knew me uh, high. And the friends that that um, I still have from the old days, like Francois Coase, who plays on that record that you mm-hmm. just listened yeah. to, um, he was 17 when he joined Gong. And um, I was 22 or 23. And uh so I was a little older than him. Now we're just a couple of crusty old old guys, but <laughs> but um, he remembers well what a pain in the ass I, I could be, and mm. um, and so does my wife because she saw me bottom out during my last year before I sobered up, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And um, that was in Paris, um, and we still are together after all these years mm-hmm. and had children and blah 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 yeah and 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 you moved to canada uh back yeah then, after or? my treatment i i after the early days of gong um i lived in paris for a while i was playing with some paris parisian musicians when i met my wife in quebec we were on tour and mm-hmm. i met her i was playing with this guy charlie couture he's a french kind of pop star folk uh, character um singer songwriter not really folk depends on what album but i was playing with him and and we were recording in quebec like some french people do they like to go someplace else but still not have to speak some other language so they come to quebec (laughs) and (laughs) 
she came and lived with me for a year in Paris where I bottomed out in a very inglorious way. And then I went to treatment. Then I joined her back in Quebec where I made it my home since. Great. Great. That's what, what, an, what an amazing story, really. It is. It is, man. It is. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like I, I visited you at your house uh, yes, a few years right. ago, right? Yeah. So um, we've done have... some improvements. You have to come back. <laughs> but you have yeah. a you have a beautiful house, and what I really, um, uh, what struck me um, about you is like you're 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 very um, um, you have a real sense for design, and uh, you know, well, you know what I mean. But I don't know how to explain Thank it. You. But, but, it's, but it's better now. There's more. Yeah, yeah there's more. <laughs> yeah. But also, also that base, that base that you designed, right? It's amazing. Like that was, was just. And I, oh, I the I, the, I, the Montreal we called it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't played it, and I, I don't know if it felt yeah. any good, but just, just visually, it was just incredible, and like. Like, but I have a much better thing happening. I have to tell you though, because I have okay. to do a, like a little bit of promo sure. in case somebody sees this. Sure, sure. Um, it, I've been working for two years with Tao, which is a mm -hmm. Belgian company. I don't have you ever heard of them? Yeah, they, okay. there's some high end luthiers, they have a guitar making uh company, mm -hmm. and we've uh we're very close to finishing uh, the production of the first uh, it's called it's a Tao guitar, but it's a unique bass. It's called a Hansford Rowe signature. It's called the super leggera, which means super light. And it's completely uh, unique. It's completely bespoke. Even, even the, um, uh, the bridge, the saddle, the pickups, uh, everything is uh, unique to the bass. There are no, uh, à la vrac uh, components mm -hmm. from the bin mm -hmm. and the body's a unique style and mm -hmm. uh, it will be very light and very uh, uh, wonderful I hope I haven't played it yet but it's we've been working on it for a really long time and I'll tell you as soon as I, I get the, the first one it, it won't be cheap and, they'll, and, mm -hmm. and we will make them available for purchase um, mm -hmm. at some point but um, I'm quite excited about that. It's a, it's, I've had um, lots of custom shop bases, but I never had one that um, was signature in the sense that every aspect of it is, uh, is unique to, this is even like super signature because there's no other body like this. It's not my version of a certain mm -hmm. guitar. Mm -hmm. It's, it's mm -hmm. a whole totally unique guitar mm -hmm. as your touch guitars are completely yeah. Um, completely designed by by me and the towel guys, so that's that's a good thing. I'm excited to to get it soon. You know, I, I guess that's also like what I meant with your your sense for design, um, like just from the look of your house, but also like this and and your love for cars in a way, right? I think yeah. it goes goes hand in hand somehow. Like, but but there's this this idea, this this love for beauty and this love for for um um uh 
well, I've just just had this German German thought in my head that I would have a hard time <laughs> pronouncing in English. Uh, yeah. But you know, there there is there is um, there is um, like see this this is like a chestnut. Yeah. Yeah. And like like you know that you could ha hold the chestnut in your hand and you get this beautiful like this feeling that it's like a perfect kind of shape, shape. and like you can you can make that even more perfect and and that's that's sort of like like the way that i sort of experience or or well uh, that's the impression i got from also when you're playing bass it's a little bit like that that there's this 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 um this close um contact with the with a note right there's there's more it's more than a technique of playing right it's more right. it's more that like every single note you kind of you you um you sculpt it mm -hmm. right? and 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 it doesn't surprise me that um i ever forgot the name of the guy who who uh introduced you to um just intonation but john john catler a guitar john player catler. okay yeah so 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 just just even even the idea for somebody who has been uh you know, like 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 me, listen to like uh, uh, like the tuning system that everybody uses, right? And then going to something completely different, it really requires a, a really a really uh, a special uh, character and personality, right? To uh, it requires openness. That's all. Many people openness. have. Yeah, it. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah they usually yeah. they're usually. Uh, creative people, and I don't know to how how I compare creative to other creative people but it is a trait you know it's a personality trait to to want to be interested in new things openness and yeah, yeah yeah when john showed me that i not only did i feel interested i felt embarrassed to not know about it mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. and I, I don't mean that as a judgment that is just what i felt i was like how can i have been playing these notes for so long these 12 you know 12 equal tempered notes without ever wondering how they came to be why they they organize themselves well together and and without putting that in question um i mean you know i'd heard of indigenous tuning systems and that was it i didn't i didn't really question it further than that and and mm -hmm. when he started talking to me about uh about a tuning system based on nature's own way of associating vibrations together the harmonic series um and that you could you could develop a whole tuning system using those fundamental relationships i was like not only tell me more but like what the fuck wasn't why wasn't i concerned about this before and so i spent a couple of years um with harry parch and 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 some of the seminal uh, ji guys just intonation guys and then I had John to help me uh, uh, create instruments and 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 apply it by making records and and it's really through his graces that I I got uh, seriously involved in it and he introduced mm -hmm. me to Lamont Young too. So, so don't don't get me wrong, but I I find it uh, interesting because guitar instruments like stringed instruments uh they are it's they're also sort of like impossible to be properly in tune anyway right yeah 
and, a nightmare. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. But I, you know, I have to say like my approach is to to embrace the nightmare. Right? Yeah, <laughs> to yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> to just to play with that, right? And you having mentioned that like the first the, the bass that you went to those uh uh, 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 jingle sessions with was, yeah. was a fretless, right? So it wasn't. <laughs> right. No, it's just interesting. So, so because like, um, and, and and this maybe again maybe a stupid question, but do you think that having played the fretless for a while, you have some, you've had, you had some sort of like uh, like priming? Oh yeah, yeah I yes, I did. It was did. one of the first basses i my after that eb3 i got a fretless a four string fretless in 1974 and that's mm -hmm. what i played on all the early gong records and mm -hmm. so fretless was my preoccupation when i first started seriously playing bass mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and you know uh although i play much more fretted bass than i have fretless in 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 my whole life it's still a core part of uh yeah of of playing and this this bass i don't know if you can see it very well here mm -hmm. it has markings mm -hmm. which are they they go all the way across the neck mm -hmm. and they give me um they give me just intonation intervals on the fretless um and it, this one is special. I wanted to actually tell you about this space because I'm using open tunings, which you which you talked about in one of your touch guitar things, which I mm -hmm. reviewed quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and I found interesting you're tuning in fifths and then a, a special tuning for the top strings yes. so that you can get more close voicings, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, recently I started tuning this space in a in a open tuning C G C G and then a B flat. But it's a B flat and a half. It's a it's a very flat B flat. Tell me if you can hear this. Yeah, can hear it. Yeah, can hear it. It's not distorting. No, no, sounds great. That's the open tuning. Mm -hmm. Perfect tuning. So 
Yes. You know, and I, here we're getting a really, I love playing with this open tuning, partly because it completely messed me up. You know, I, I started playing two times just intonation has done to this to me, Mark. Two times. When I first started playing it, I, I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I had to just put my fingers in places and see what happened, which is like when you're first learning to play, right? Mm -hmm. Except that I had some craft, I had some some technique and, and, and notions of theory, but I didn't know what was gonna happen when I picked the fret, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and so you had to, to, it felt like I was back learning to play again. It was wonderful. Then with this open tuning, I'm having that sensation again because there's um, fifths, which I'm not used to, um, but there's also one, you know, between two strings is a fourth, like I am used to. It goes C, G, C. C, so G, yes. C is a, yeah. that's like, I can, it's normal. And then there, you have this really weird string, which is the B flat and a half, which is a, uh, doesn't line up properly <laughs> so when i go to that string i'm not quite sure as i go up what what's going to happen it's uh <laughs> um there are also whole sets of uh of um physical layout things that make sense on this bass that didn't make sense in a, in a regular tuning where where um, patterns flatter than what you would have on a touch guitar or on any of my regular guitars here yeah yeah it is actually in tune but this kind of destabilization thing just like is so wonderful in 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 terms of it's destabilizing so it's not pleasant but it's wonderful because uh you you have to start to play again you still have to start to use your ears and 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 say um, like, listen, if you set up a kind of bluesy uh, pattern here that's quite palatable, yeah. right? Just a C major. But then I go to the four chord and I make it 21 cents flatter than where we would normally go. Yeah. 
these things make a difference. <laughs> yeah, they, they do. They do. When you're trying to resolve chords or when you're, do, when you're moving from one place to another, the ability to, to, um, to use the microtonal components makes a significant difference to, to what you're going to hear, what you're going to write, how you're going to resolve, uh, how you'll hear uh, nuances and melodies how you can delay a, a resolution much more than you would normally. Um, and, and, and people hear it. So what's my point? My what, point what? is that the, 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 I think that there should be a way to introduce people to just intonation as a matter of course, as a mm -hmm. matter of whether or not they, even if they're just going to experiment with their voices and some fretless instruments and all the rest of the time, they're going to play their 12 tone instruments. That's fine. At least they'll know that there's a physical nature to music that, that just comes from natural physics, you know, the overtone series and then how 12 tone compares to that, mm -hmm. you know, 12 tone mm -hmm. equal. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, like I have, um, um, I, I've been teaching a lot of music theory recently, and and there's one, one particular thing that that has struck me um, like more and more, and which sort of like you have just confirmed also in the level of microtonality is that we have we have cyclic cyclic nature of, like tuning is not fixed, but tuning moves like right like do you do i do i take the right branch or do i take the left branch mm -hmm. right it it doesn't lead you to the same uh uh environment the environment the harmonic environment or the the the, shift. the shifts right like yeah. depending which branch you take mm -hmm. right and and also like going back may not actually lead you back to where you to were the same but place no, right. yes yes so and and i think that the same is actually true even within the the equal temperament system in a way because like we have been so obsessed with diatonic music right mm -hmm. where diatonic music is simply the circle of fifth where we mm -hmm. just where we just decide okay we're not going to take the eighth note in that cycle because it gives us a chromatic note in between like like f and g like you get the mm -hmm. f sharp in between right like mm -hmm. so we simply decide to cut it off there because we can't deal with actually going a step further mm -hmm. like literally mm -hmm. right literally yeah and so because like if we kept going we would change tonality or we would change the the tuning for, you and know, we like, wouldn't be able to get back to where we started perhaps yes yes like exactly and that's right. yeah and that's and that's that's i guess that's the fear right because right. like like then what you would have to do you would have to kind of like submit yourself to the the cyclic nature yeah. of progression yeah right? and 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 like, then where and does totally, it turn totally around really. yeah yeah well we've been john and i just recently started trying to apply just intonation to uh, the fibonacci series just the low simple fibonacci mm -hmm. combinations because they spiral that's why mm -hmm. and they uh, improvising over progressions like that even if you reset after a certain amount of chords or or whatever a certain amount of movement it's better mm -hmm. to say um is incredibly challenging because the the they they're not parallel you know it's constantly evolving as you go up the series 
And then maybe you can reset and start over again if you want to make it into like a, a chord progression. But the the connection between the individual chords is based on Fibonacci. It's not based on just being like three frets higher or three mm -hmm. half steps higher, or, you know, in the same relationships, just higher. It's it's new. It's new stuff each time you move. And they potentially continue forever. Yes. Um, so you get a. It's not just for the sake of the novel aspect of it. You actually hear these things like you can hear the entire thing going somewhere and you don't know where that is. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's really yeah. interesting, you know, yes. and yeah. um, we do another thing too, uh, John and I, he, he taught me this, which is called traveling where you have a tonal center that's moving at a certain speed. Uh, like a modal primary center, your first mode or your first chord that you're on. And, and it, it say it goes up, it goes up uh, a half step or some just interval, whatever you want to use as an increment at a certain speed, like one every two beats or something. Right. And the, it's, but smoothly, you have to do it on fretless instruments so that as you, as you're playing that mode, it's moving up all the time mm -hmm. and it gets at a certain speed it gets to a certain height and then you go back down if you want to make a cycle out of it and mm -hmm. do it again or you can go going down it's just traveling but mm -hmm. as you as you play you move with the speed of the of the moving tonal center and you can apply whatever mode you want to this it's just moving it's traveling and this gives a tremendous uh kind of um i mean you can play descending lines against a rising tonal center and stuff like that. It's very mm -hmm. interesting. Yes, right. Yes, yeah. And it's, those are, those are ramifications of opening up your idea about tuning that go beyond just the idea that we're going to use only notes from the harmonic series and it's just intonation mm -hmm. or it's some other equal uh, temperament, you know, 19 or 31 or the, there are many other ones that are equal. Mm -hmm. It's, it's beyond that. It's more like just the idea that things can move. And in the tune I've been playing with Lamont for the last few years, which was written by one of his uh, main uh, acolytes, uh, kind of disciple, mm -hmm. Zheng He Shua is her name. She's Korean. Um, there's a drone. And the drone is is comprised of a whole bunch of, uh, of other drones that are all moving. And they're moving at certain rates and they a, it takes like 30 minutes for them to do a cycle. Mm -hmm. And it sounds globally like one drone, like, mm -hmm. like it has a tonal center, but you can't find it. It's mm -hmm. you just hear this thing and it's everybody's moving a little bit at different speeds and it sounds like a big drone. But if you try to figure out what's the note, you can't quite seize it. Right. Mm -hmm. But, it's 30 Hertz basically. And, and we, and we deal with it in a kind of blues, a just intonation blues mantra, which is a more like a Raga in some ways, it's extremely slow. And it's all against that drone, which is constantly moving. Mm -hmm. So there's, it's, it is, it's full it's of emotions. You know, it's, it's, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. You see, this is, I, I, believe that you know like the word that i used um, a few minutes ago was uh, progression right 
-hmm. So like here you have like the, the, the progression of that drone. It's yep. constantly evolving, constantly changing, but still it's cyclic in some it way. Like cycle. you said, in yep. 30 minutes, it's, you yep. know, starts over. But um, I think that this um, comes down to uh, the acceptance of us being in process. So it's more than it's, it, you know, it's like, it's also about ourselves constantly spiraling yeah. But we're not, but we're not spiraling in in position, right? It's not that we're stuck and just, you know, like 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 the 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 the, the circular movement has has some movement, right? Mm -hmm. And and this is this is, um, I think, perfectly well. You you just gave a really beautiful example how that can be put into musical art. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I I, I wish there would be like um, like more openness, as you say um for this and but you know it like it it i also understand you know why people sort of uh, have a hard time with it because it requires you to let go where this is our theme right like i'm i'm, I'm actually already <laughs> thinking like what is what is kind of like the headline for a conversation well let go let, let go <laughs> that's fine with me <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and it's it's you know, it's not easy. So, so, <laughs> and I, you know, I'm trying not to judge people. And I'm obviously like, for me, like my, um, my excuse <laughs> to not, you know, to not deal with other tuning systems yeah. is that I find that, you know, like I still hear so much within uh, equal temperament. There's a lot to hear. Yes, yes, you know. So, so that that's my excuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it sounds judgmental. I know, but you know, there's what we don't know compared to what we do know. It's not a fair comparison. You know, we the amount we don't know is, is infinite, and the amount we do know is so finite. So, mm -hmm. there's going to always be this this slight guilt about about. Uh, being not exploratory enough right i feel it you feel it it's it's the nature of unexplored territory it's always there and it's always dangerous because you don't know what's there it might be it might threaten you in some way and yet it's also a source of potential right so there could be wonderful things there but um it's gonna always be there you know full of uh full of of gold and also of dragons, right? Mm -hmm. So it's normal to 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 be wary of uh, of going outside of those bounds. And you know, I personally think uh, that that's kind of our job is to do that. Uh, describe describe whatever adventures we can, or whatever uh, aspects of nature that we can. Um, Musically, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't go much further down down the purpose of it than that, mm -hmm. but yes, 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 yeah, yeah. I, for me, there's this this extra layer of of the of human psychology also like tied to that whole topic of. Of boundaries, right? and, of boundaries and yeah yeah, 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 you know, just this this very, you know, like twelfth tone equal temperament, and people have a hard time, you know, like 
choosing the right notes to play over a chord, right? Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous, you know? Like, I know. In a way. I know. Right? Yeah. Well, now, now you're feeling it, right? Because yeah. Yeah. that's the, like, the bad side of being in a safe place. It's yeah. a wonderful yeah. thing to be in a safe place because it's safe. Mm-hmm. But the, the downside is it turns tyrannical. It turns mm-hmm. like that. It's like, oh, what's the right note? It's like when students say, when am I going to be good? And I'm like, mm-hmm. why are you asking me? It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. the answer to that question is when you stop asking that question. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay. My friend, I think we should stop here. <laughs> like two uh, two hours of wonderful conversation. Is it really two hours? Yes, already? two hours. Yes. Oh, well, it's been my pleasure, Marcus. Yeah, my pleasure as well. I I really hope that I'll uh, get to visit you again at some point. <laughs> yeah, we're all hoping that, and I would love to see you here again. You know, like the 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 tour that was uh, that also had Montreal as a as a stop has been. Uh, postponed three times already i think really <laughs> yeah so but that uh, would be with stickman with stickman yeah yeah, yeah. so i i hope it's it's still going to happen but probably not before next year so yeah yeah thank you so much for your time it, it's been a pleasure and let's stay in touch and um i'll let you know when i'm when i'm going to publish this probably going to yes, be a couple and weeks I'll, I'll, i'll help you spread it around if we can thank you Yeah. All right. Thanks, Marcus. And, and say hi to your wife and to your kids. All right. You too. <laughs> bye bye for now. Ciao, ciao. Bye. ciao.